Father in heaven, as we come into your presence together this morning as a church family, we've come here because we want to hear from our heavenly Father. Not merely out of routine do we come to church or out of obligation, but to worship you. And so, Father, as we open your word this morning, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to apply it in our hearts right where it needs to be. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week in our study together, we looked at the time that we are living in, in the context of how the Bible describes it in the language of warfare. We find that throughout the Bible, there are many ways that the Bible describes the Christian experience. Sometimes it describes it in agricultural terms, sometimes in athletic pursuits. In other ways, it describes it in construction, building, and things of that nature, shepherds looking over their sheep. There are lots of different ways that the Bible describes the Christian experience. But one thing that we find repeated throughout Scripture is the concept of warfare. It is repeatedly mentioned throughout the Bible. And as we look at Scriptures from the beginning to end, and we did a brief history of this in our study together last week, we find that from the very beginning all the way down to the time when Christ comes back, it is constant warfare that is taking place. We looked at that great passage that we're so familiar with in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17, that Satan has come to make war with God's people. In the Bible, we do not find described a wartime part of life and a non-wartime part of life. The Bible simply describes our experience as war. And the sooner we understand that we are in warfare, the better soldiers we will become. Amen? Civilians, as I mentioned in our study last week, do not fare well when they are dropped into the middle of war. They are unprepared. They are untrained. They aren't properly clothed. They don't have the right equipment. And if a, if a civilian is dropped into war, many times that civilian will meet with death. We are not civilians. We are soldiers. Amen? Testimonies for the Church, volume 8, page 313, says this, the Christian life is a battle and a march. In this warfare, there is no release. The effort must be continuous and persevering. Must be what? Continuous and there, there's no release until Jesus comes in the clouds of heaven. Until that time, it is a constant battle and a march. Now, perhaps the greatest tragedy, in my humble opinion, is when we find that as Christians, we fall under this warfare. And I think largely that is due to the fact that we are not properly prepared when we go in to the battle. And that's what we want to take a look at in our time together here today. 
how we can be properly prepared. Go with me in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. We started looking at this briefly in our time together last week. We're going to delve into it a little bit more. Ephesians chapter 6 is perhaps the greatest passage when it comes to the concept of warfare in the Bible, the armor of God. Ephesians chapter 6, Paul is concluding his remarks to the church of Ephesus. As he finishes this letter, he finishes off by telling them to put on the armor of God. In verse 10, he says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his, what? In the strength of his might. Before Paul even gets into describing the armor of God, He gives two commands to God's people before they even put the first piece of armor on. And as we studied this out in our time together last week, we found the first command that Paul gave was for God's people to be what? Strong in the Lord. It's interesting that if you look through the book of Ephesians, you will find that Paul uses this little phrase, in the Lord, or some equivalent of it, about 38 times in six chapters. Paul is getting the message across to the church of Ephesus that everything in their life must be done in the power and strength of God. Is it any different for us today? So before the soldier goes off into battle, before the soldier clads himself in the armor of God, Paul first says that we are not going in our own strength, but we are to go in the strength of the Lord. Now, any soldier needs to have a strong and courageous heart, does he not? And we looked at last week how a soldier can be clad in all of the modern military garments, uh, the bulletproof vests and the guns and, and all of the modern technology. He can have all of that stuff and look like a soldier, walk like a soldier, and act like a soldier. But if he does not have a strong and courageous heart, all of that stuff on the outside is going to do little for him when he finds himself in war, especially a war like the enemy that we have to meet And so Paul tells us that before you put that armor on, you need to have a strong, courageous heart that is going to stand in the midst of the battle that we are about to fight in. The next command that Paul gives is found in verse 13. Just a quick recap here of our study last week. Verse 13, he says, Wherefore, take unto you the what? The whole armor of God. How much of the armor of God? All of it, not part of it, but all of it. The whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Second command that Paul gives before the armor is even talked about is to put on how much of it and whose is it? He says, put all the armor on and remember it's not yours. Because any armor that I make is flimsy when it comes to the time of war. Uh, Last week we talked about how armor that we make is like cardboard. And it might work when people throw sticks and stones at you. But it's not going to work when the enemy of all enemies comes against you in that spiritual conflict. 
And so Paul says, listen, this is not your armor. This is God's armor. And don't go with just part of it on. Don't go into battle without your breastplate or without your helmet. But he says, go with the whole armor of God. It is his. He owns it. He prepared it. He bestows it. He gives it to you to be able to fight against the greatest of all enemies. In Manuscript Release, Volume 10, page 116, we're told this. Let everyone who names the name of Christ read this scripture again and again. How many? Everybody is to read this scripture how often? Again and again. You know, I find it interesting. There, there, there are passages in the Bible where Ellen White tells us that we should spend a great deal of time studying them. And they're passages that we're very familiar with. They're ones like, oh, yeah, I've heard that one before. What's, what's new, right? But she says we need to study them again and again. And then she says this, and then inquire, am I clothed with the whole armor of God that I might be, success, be a successful co-laborer with Christ? You see, it's not just an intellectual assent to the passage of Scripture. It's not just being able to rattle off what the armor of God is, that there are six pieces of the armor, and that this represents that, and that that represents this in the Bible. It's not just an intellectual understanding that she says we need to gain, but an experiential experience where we are clad and have that armor on. There's all the difference in the world between being able to say, this is what righteousness is, this is what salvation is, this is what faith is, and be able to practically define it, but it's completely different to actually have it on. It's completely different to use it when the battle comes. And so she says we need to look at this passage again and again and then ask ourselves the question, am I clothed with the whole armor of God? Now, before we get into this, I want to share with you a couple of passages that you might find encouraging. Just jot them down in your notes if you would. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4, the Bible says this, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Somebody should say amen to that. This is the type of armor that God is wanting us to put on. It's an armor that is mighty to the pulling down of the strongholds of God's enemy, Satan. Promises of victory, 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. That Bible says, Now thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ. How often? Always. Where are we when we triumph? We are where? Now keep that little piece of information tucked behind your ear that triumph comes when we are in Christ because that's going to be important here in just a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 57, just jot these down. But thanks be to God which giveth us the victory. Amen? There are passage after passage in the Bible. Luke chapter 10 and verse 19, the Bible says, Behold, I give unto you power to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Over how much power? All the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. That's what God wants you to go into battle with. When you put on the armor of God, this is the experience that we can have. But you see, many of us, we go into the conflict with our cardboard armor on. 
And then when we fall, we're like, this stuff doesn't work. It doesn't work. I've tried, and, 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 and that's just the point. You've tried, but you haven't been in Christ. And when you're in Christ and you have his armor on, it makes all the difference in the world. Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 19, the Bible says this, when the enemy shall come in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord shall rise up a standard against him. Passage after passage in the Bible about victory that we can have as we engage in the spiritual warfare that is all around us. Paul takes the simple blessings that we read here in Ephesians chapter 6, truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, and the word of God. That's the armor. And he puts them in a wartime context. As we, saw, as we said last week, God has conscripted these things to be used for battle. Is it a blessing to have faith, yes or no? Is it a blessing to have peace, yes or no? Is it a blessing to have salvation? Yes, it's a blessing to have all of those things. But those things, the Bible tells us, are specifically set aside as armor to be worn in battle. Not just for us to revel in the blessing of being saved. Not for us to revel in the blessing of faith and and righteousness and the word of God. But these things are to be used to protect us when the enemy comes against us like a flood. It's the very armor that we are to wear. Now, as true as this may be, many people don't actually see it this way, and we may be able to rattle off what the armor of God is, but it's another thing to say it. It's another thing to have it on. And that's what we want to understand in our study together today and next week, what it means to put on the armor of God. Now, just as a little background, you might find this interesting. The book of Ephesians was written while Paul was a prisoner in Rome. If you remember that history, Paul, as he traveled to Rome, he was accompanied by a soldier uh, just about everywhere he went. At this particular time, he was on house arrest. And so he knew what it was like to be around soldiers, right? Many times he was actually chained to those soldiers. And so I can only imagine in my mind's eye that as Paul was being followed around by these soldiers everywhere he went, that he oftentimes looked at the garments that the soldiers had on. And as he looked at the armor of the Roman soldier, he found in it an illustration that we can find applicable in our spiritual lives or in our Christian life. The very thing that protected them in battle were the very things that would protect us in battle in a spiritual sense. The uh, book or the, 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 the city of Ephesus... Uh, was one of the leading, uh, most rich, one of the richest cities in the Roman Empire. And many times they uh, hosted the gladiatorial fights in the Colosseums that were set up by Nero. And so they also were familiar with seeing armor. So Paul was employing imagery that was very familiar to them, and we can relate to it as well from our understanding of Roman culture and what was used in warfare. Now, before we actually get into this, I want to just kind of give you a broader context and overview of what we're talking about here. I want you to go with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 13. Keep your finger in Ephesians. We're going to come back to that in just a minute here. Romans chapter 13, Paul makes some very interesting statements here. 
that I think shed an interesting light on the armor of God. At least it was interesting to me. Romans chapter 13, verse 11. Paul says this. He says, and that knowing that, that knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. Paul is kind of sounding a word of alarm here, that now it's time for us to wake up. Our salvation is near, basically, is what he's saying. And then he says this in verse 12, that uh, the night is far spent, the day is at hand, let us therefore cast off the works of what? Darkness, and put on the what? Right, so there's an exchange that's happening here, right? Cast off the works of darkness, put on the armor of light. And then Paul defines what the works of darkness are for us in verse 13. And I'm going to read this to you from the New King James Version. It says, let us walk uh, uh, purposely um, and in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. So he's defining there for us what the works of darkness are. Don't have anything to do with these things. Cast them off, in other words. And then he makes a very interesting statement in the next verse. Verse 14, he says this, but put on the what? And put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. So he says, cast off the works of darkness, put on the armor of light. He defines what the work of darkness are, and then he says, put on who? Let me ask you a question. What does it mean to put on the armor of light? It means to put who on? So what we find when we look at Ephesians chapter 6, when we put on the armor of God, what we are doing is we are putting on Christ. I don't know about you. I found that interesting when I looked at that. That changes the whole thing. It's not just righteousness on its own. It's not just salvation on its own. It's not just faith on its own. But when I am clad in the armor of Christ, when I'm clad in the armor of light, I have on Jesus. And with Jesus, we are more than conquerors. Now, of course, we know that many times in the Bible, Jesus is defined as light. John chapter 1 John chapter 8, Isaiah chapter 9, all of these places define Jesus as the true light, the light of the world, the great light that is seen by everyone. Paul is simply saying here that we are putting on Jesus when we put on the armor of God. Go back with me to Ephesians. You should have your finger there. And while you're turning there, I want to share with you a little quick statement here that I found interesting This is from Watchman Nee. He was a Chinese church leader and teacher. Spent the last 20 years of his life in prison because of the cause of Christ and because of his belief in Jesus. He said this, It will help us greatly and save us from much confusion if we keep constantly before us this fact that God God will answer all of our questions in one way and one way only, namely by showing us more of his Son. Isn't that amazing? You know, these things that we, sometimes we, we separate them out, 
But what we actually find is that the Word of God is revealing to us Jesus in every detail. And as we go through the armor of God, as we go through each element of it, what we are putting on when we put the armor on is we are putting Jesus on. And when we go into that battle with Jesus, we may have questions, but if we go into that battle with Jesus, we will come out victorious on the other end. So that leads us to the conclusion that when we are not victorious, we have not what? We haven't put the armor on, but we haven't put who on? We haven't allowed God to give us that character of Jesus that can withstand the assaults of the enemy. In Historical Sketches, page 128, it says, The armor of God, once put on, is not to be laid off for slight excuses. So when do we lay off the armor of God? Do we ever do it? Why? Because the Bible doesn't describe a peacetime part of life and a wartime part of life. The Bible describes life as war. And when you are in war, you always have your armor on. Amen? So here's the thing. Once you put that armor on, you never take it off. What we do is we actually renew that armor morning by morning. And we say, God, keep that armor on me as I meet whatever may come my way today. Or if we find that at some point we have taken that armor off, we ask God to put it back on for us. Okay, so let's go ahead and dive into this. We're going to look at verse 14 in the time that we have remaining here together. Verse 14, the Bible goes on and it says, Ephesians 6, 14, Stand therefore, having your loins gird about with truth. Now, I could probably preach a whole sermon on each one of these things, but we just don't have time to do that. I only have a few more Sabbaths with you, so we're going to go through this as quickly as we can. Bible says, have your loins gird about with truth. The belt was an important part for the soldier. The belt, when the Roman soldier would put the belt on, the belt held his sword that he would use in battle. It also held uh, some pieces of leather that would hang down from the belt to protect the lower portion of the soldier when he went into battle. The belt was also used to hold back the clothes that the soldier had on and to keep them all in place so that he could move with efficiency and be able to fight effectively when he was found in battle. The belt was a very intimate part of the soldier. It touched his body very closely and kept everything together. I find it very interesting that the first piece of the armor of God is to put on the belt of what? Truth. It all starts with truth. If we don't have our compass pointing in the right direction of truth, how we define things will be messed up. So if we, don't, if we don't have the belt of truth on, we are not going to have a correct understanding of what it means to have the helmet of salvation or the sword of the spirit or the, 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 the breastplate of righteousness. We're not going to have a correct understanding of those things if we don't first start by having the belt of truth that is on. 
without being submitted to this truth, there is no hope that we will be able to understand any other part of the armor that God wants us to put on. Now, of course, in John chapter 14 and verse 6, you can write that down. Uh, If you would, the Bible tells us that Jesus, Jesus is actually talking there. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So the Bible defines Jesus as truth. There's many things in the Bible that are defined as truth, but Jesus is defined as truth. So here's the interesting thing that I gather from this. Truth is more than a collection of knowledge. Truth is a person. Did you catch that? Truth is more than a collection of knowledge. Truth is a person. So when I put on the belt of truth, that doesn't mean that I just have the right answers to the, uh, to the objections on the Sabbath and the state of the dead. That's not having on the belt of truth. That's part of it. But having on the belt of truth is having an intimate relationship who is the way, the truth, and the life. It's walking with Jesus and having that close relationship with him, morning by morning, going with him wherever he goes, and having him help us through our lives no matter what comes our way. That's what it means to have the belt on. Yes, we have the right answers for these different objections on Bible doctrines and things like that, but I believe it's more than that. It's having an intimate relationship with the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. I think many Seventh-day Adventists put more emphasis on knowing what the truth is than they do on having a relationship with the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. We're fabulous with proof texts. We've, we've, got, we've got lists as long as your arm when it comes to proving doctrine. So we have this intellectual knowledge, and that's a wonderful blessing that we can thank God for. But we don't want to stop there, because if that's all that our religion is comprised of, we'll actually find that when we come into battle, because we don't know our general intimately and have a relationship with him, we will not be successful when that battle comes our way. So it's not just having that knowledge, but it's having an experience with him. In his book, The Armor of God, Winston Ferris makes this statement. He says, religion, religious theory, doctrine, theology, philosophy, psychology, however important these things may be, have been sought as the answer in every generation. Yet, when we study the triumphant lives of great Christians, their secret of victory always lies in one thing, a growing intimate relationship with a person Jesus Christ. That's where the victory comes from. It's having that intimate walk together with him. And we're going to find that all of the different elements of the armor of God contribute to having that close walk together with Jesus. A lot of us are ready to go in like Peter with our sword drawn and ready to cut people's heads off. But God says, hey, before you pull that sword out, make sure you have the truth. Make sure you're walking with the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Make sure you have a relationship with that one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Before you even put that sword on that belt, walk with Jesus day by day. I believe that therein lies the great power of victory is walking together with Jesus. 
Scripture also says in John chapter 17 and verse 17, Jesus says that God's word or his word is truth. So along with a tight relationship with Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, to gird on the belt of truth is to also have an understanding of God's word. So there's two elements to this. It's, also, it's a knowledge of God's word, but it's a relationship with him as well, walking together with him day by day. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13, jot it down. The Bible says this, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. What does the Bible say? Gird up the loins of your mind. It's interesting, right? The Bible says to gird on the belt of truth, but it also says to gird up the loins of your mind. The battlefield is raging right here inside of our head, this warfare that's happening in our minds day by day. And Peter's advice is for us to gird up the loins of our mind. He is telling us to disengage our minds from worldly pursuits. That our minds are to be bound by truth. What are our minds to be bound by? Our minds are to be bound by truth, the relationship with Christ and the knowledge and the truths of God's word, that our thoughts, our words, our actions, our very being is to be bound as a belt binds your pants on you, that that truth is to be bound on your mind, guarding it and keeping it lest it fall apart and go into many different directions. You see, many times our minds can become very loose. And I don't know if you've experienced this, but I have many times. Sometimes when I sit down and I have a little extra time, I find my mind just everywhere. Have you ever had that experience before? And before you know it, you're thinking about something that you just didn't really want to think about, right? That's because you haven't allowed your mind to be girt about with the belt of truth, right? So sometimes our minds just can wander, and we have to allow the Word of God to rein in those thoughts. When we're feeling, uh, you know, like, woe is me, and, and, and having those pity parties and everything, we need to rein it in with the belt of truth and have our minds gird with the truths of God's Word, a relationship with Christ and a knowledge of His Word. I like the way the ESV translation uh, translates this particular passage in 1 Peter 1.13. It says this, therefore, prepare your minds for action, right? Prepare your minds for what? For action. So this is what we're doing. We're, we're, not, we're not sedentary. We're not just standing around. We're not just having a good time. We're not just daydreaming. We're not just castle building. We are soldiers who are fighting. Prepare your mind for action. That's what Peter means, or Paul means when he says to gird up the loins of your mind. But Paul goes on in Ephesians, you should still be there, verse 14. He says, stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth. And then he says, having on the what? The breastplate of righteousness. And again, there's a lot that can be said here, but we're just going to push through uh, some of this information. The breastplate was an important part of the armor that the soldier would wear. It protected the vital organs of the lung, lungs and the heart. And you know that when, uh, you know when a soldier is in battle, here is one of the first places that the enemy tries to attack, right? Because if he can, 
get them in the heart, if he can get them in the lung, it will cause the person to die. And so the Roman soldier, before he went into battle, he would put on this breastplate to protect those vital organs. And even today, soldiers, when they go into battle, they have bulletproof vests vests on to protect those vital organs. And what we find in the Bible is that the heart is an expression of our relationship with God. And we need to protect that relationship with God lest the enemy try to attack it and kill it, thus resulting in a spiritual casualty or spiritual death. The Bible tells us this. In uh, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, it says, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. So the wise man Solomon, he says, watch your heart, guard your heart, protect your heart, because out of it are the issues of life. The heart and the lungs are at the foundation of our physical life and at the foundation also of our spiritual life. And this is why David prays in Psalms 51.10, create in me a clean heart, O God. This is why Proverbs 3 and verse 5 says, trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Uh, the Bible repeats over and over again how our heart is at the center of that relationship together with God. And before we go into battle, the Bible tells us that we need to protect it with the breastplate of righteousness. Now, I also find it interesting that Gospel Workers, page 254, says this, that prayer is the breath of the soul. So not only do we have a heart that needs to be protected, but we also have lungs that need to be protected. And those two things are protected with the breastplate of righteousness. And our lungs, as I see it, you know, as I look at this statement here, is kind of symbolic of our prayer life. And so God wants our relationship with him and our prayer life with him to be protected with the breastplate of righteousness. Now, how does the Bible define this concept of righteousness? Let's just look at this very quickly here. Uh, In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6 and verse 25, The Bible says this, and it shall be our righteousness if we observe to do all these commandments before the Lord our God as he hath commanded us. We find a connection in the Bible between righteousness and keeping God's commandments. Here's another one. Isaiah chapter 51 and verse 7, the Bible says, hearken unto me, ye that know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. So simply put, I mean, there are lots of definitions for righteousness, right? So, you know, we could have a whole series on just righteousness. But simply put, from these Bible passages, righteousness is lovingly obeying God's law. Can you see that from the Bible passage? Lovingly obeying God's law. So how does this all pull together, right? So you have your heart that's being protected by the breastplate. You have your lungs that are being protected by the breastplate. If the breastplate is lovingly obeying God's law, then the breastplate, as we obey God's law lovingly, we are protecting our spiritual life, our heart, and our prayer life. Now let me ask you a question. Can you have a vibrant relationship with Christ when you are disobeying his law, yes or no? You can't. Right? Can you have a vibrant, vibrant, vibrant prayer life when you are knowingly disobeying God's law? Yes or no? No, you can't. 
right? So when we are lovingly obeying God's law, when we are taking his righteousness as our righteousness, we are in a sense protecting that relationship, that vital organ in our spiritual life. We're protecting our relationship with God and we are protecting that prayer life, that line of communication between us and God. And we'll talk more about prayer later on in our study together as it relates to the armor of God. In 1 John chapter 5 and verse 3, the Bible says this, says this is from the New Living Translation, loving God means keeping his commandments. What does it mean to love God? Loving God means keeping his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So when I'm obeying God's law, am I doing it out of duty, out of bondage? No, it's because I love God. And as I lovingly obey God, I am preserving my spiritual life. I am preserving my prayer life. You see, when we walk in willful disobedience, you do not have the breastplate of righteousness on. Do you follow me on that one? When we walk in willful disobedience, when we are doing what we know we should not be doing, we have taken off the breastplate of righteousness. We have exposed those vital organs to the enemy's attack. And the enemy, as I mentioned last week, he does not sleep and he does not weary. He is constantly vigilant. And if he sees you take that breastplate off, what do you think he's going to do? Now's my chance. He's going to load up his arrow and he's going to shoot it straight into your spiritual heart. Loving God means keeping his commandments. It is imperative, brothers and sisters, that when you know you, your life is out of harmony with God's word, that you change your life instantly. If you don't, you are susceptible to the enemy's attacks, and there will be a casualty that will be a result of that. It's imperative that we have that breastplate of righteousness on at all times. There's lots, lots that can be said on this. Patriarchs and uh, Prophets and Kings, I'll conclude with this. Pro- Prophets and Kings, page 200 or 725, it says this. Clad in the armor of Christ's righteousness, the church is to enter upon her field of conflict. She is to go forth into all the world, conquering and to conquer. But before there's a conquering and conquer, What does she have to have on? The armor of Christ's righteousness. That's where the victory comes from. So as we've seen so far, life is war. That's what we've concluded. There's not a wartime part of life and a non-wartime part of life. Every day, every moment of every day, when we wake up, when we go to bed, we're constantly in battle. Therefore, we need to have that armor on at all times. Part of that armor is having the belt of truth. That's what we looked at this morning that, uh, that intimate relationship with the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Not just an intellectual understanding, but an experiential relationship with Christ. It also means putting on the breastplate of righteousness, lovingly obeying God's word and God's law, protecting those vital organs 
of the heart and the lungs, the relationship and the prayer life together with God. And as we begin to put these things on and keep them on day by day, we will find that we will go forth conquering and to conquer. I just found a story recently about a a soldier, Staff Sergeant Brian McQueen. He was deployed in Afghanistan and was meeting, coming to the end of his term over there, getting ready to come back home. And him and a bunch of his other friends were going around on routine security meetings that they had every day. This particular day, as they were walking to the place where they would meet with some of the other Afghanistan soldiers, he heard something that he never heard before, and that was at least not as he was walking to these meetings anyways, he heard the sound of machine gun fire. Now, that was uncommon. This was routine thing. Every day they had these meetings together just to make sure they were on the same page. And never once had they come under attack during those meetings. But this particular day, he heard the sound of machine gun fire. And before he knew it, he felt what he described later like he got kicked in the back of the head by a horse. After the blow on the back of the head, he fell flat on his face, and then he got back up again, and he thought to himself, did they just shoot me in the head? (laughs) I don't know about you, but the thought to me is if you get shot in the head, you don't ask questions like that, right? (laughs) He, He felt like he got kicked in the back of the head by a horse. He got up, and later on, he discovered that he got hit in the back of the head by a bullet from a machine gun that was bolted to a truck. You see a picture of it. He's actually got the the helmet that's fixed to a plaque. And he owed his life to the wearing of that helmet. But this is what he said. I found this very interesting. He said this. He said, before this incident... I thought the helmet was cumbersome and overkill. But after that incident, everything changed. He said, this helmet works, and I am a living testament to it. I don't know. Maybe sometimes you feel like the armor of God is cumbersome. Maybe you like your cardboard because it's lighter, because it's more breezy or whatever, it may be because you think it fits better. But when you come into conflict with the enemy of all enemies, when you have the armor of God on, you will come out of that battle and say, it was worth it to wear this. It was worth it to make all of the sacrifices of sweating underneath this big, massive helmet on my head or sweating underneath this armor, this this breastplate of righteousness, or having this tight belt on holding everything together. It was worth it to go through that momentary discomfort to have my spiritual life preserved in the end. Amen? Now, here's the other thing I find interesting. This was a routine operation. He He was not going into active battle. He knew that. He was just going to a security meeting. But even though it was, quote, unquote, routine, Staff Sergeant, uh, what was his name, McQueen, knew that he was living in wartime. 
See, his perspective was different. It wasn't a peacetime and a wartime. His life was constant war because he was in a war situation. And though, even though it was a routine operation that they were doing, he still had his armor on. That's what I find interesting. The Christian church is to equip God's people for battle. How we view God's church and how, or rather, how we view the world, whether we are in wartime or peacetime, is how we will view God's church. If we view the world as a, as, a, as a time of war, we will look at the church as a means of equipping us for that war. If we look at the world as a time of peace, we will look at the church as a means of entertainment. So I ask you this morning, Have you put the armor of God on? And if you have, are you renewing it day by day? Have you had that breastplate of righteousness on, lovingly obeying God and his word? Have that belt of truth on, having that relationship with the one who is truth? And all the other things that we'll look at here in the next couple of weeks. As we follow what God asks us to do and put on Jesus Christ by putting on the armor of God, we will go from one victory to another it will be a series of uninterrupted victories. And that's what I'm looking forward to. Amen? Let's pray and ask God to help us in this. Father in heaven, we are grateful that you have given to us something that is of substance. That you are not sending us off into battle ill-equipped, but that you are setting us up to be victorious. And Father, as we march off into battle, we pray that we will put on Jesus Christ, the armor of light, and that we would meet the enemy equipped and victorious. Father, may you bless us, I pray, morning by morning, as we seek you and put you on and may you walk with us, Lord, each day we pray. Thank you, Father, for hearing our prayer, and thank you for guiding us. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org